Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And welcome to the Invested Podcast. Where? What Best happens? Best podcast about mindful investing that ever existed. We're, we're talking about That's mindful investing. And Danielle's continues to try to actually have me understand what mindful investing is. While I'm trying to teach her, my daughter, how to invest like Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett, Guy Spear, Manesh Babrai, and me, which would be sort of, we would call it value investing, where you try to find something and buy it for less than it's worth. That's what I guess what we What are you what calling it these days? Are you calling it deep value investing? Yeah, we say deep value because we we get real focused on a, on a small number of companies that we understand well. Charlie Munger, um, by the way, read anything you can written by Charlie Munger. He's phenomenal. Charlie is very comfortable owning three companies. Bruce Berkowitz is very comfortable owning three companies, you know, that you know are on sale and you like them and they're great companies. They're not going to go bankrupt. Warren Buffett, mm, he has 70% of his portfolio in about five companies. And then he has okay, a whole bunch. So, so far, you're just saying people own very low numbers of companies. Yeah, real focused, okay, that are on sale, that we, we really understand the value and we're buying them cheaply. And I think we've talked about this in a previous podcast, but on sale essentially means we're buying these companies as really as if they were private companies that are available to us to own all of, right? That That's kind of the price we look to pay for a public company, which typically is about half of what that public company would sell for. And the reason is because public companies have huge advantages to the big money investors. The, the two most important of which are that they're transparent in their information. And second, that they have a lot of liquidity in the company and they can get their $300 million back out of that thing whenever they want to, which is a big, big deal to yeah. fund yeah. managers. Yeah. So we want to buy it. value as opposed to value. Yeah. So we want to buy it as if we're going to hold it forever. And, and we would call it focused as well. It's sort of focused, deep value. We're not looking for 10% off. You know, we're looking for 50% off. And we're not, focused. yeah, and we're not looking to buy 50 or 60 things. We're looking to buy, you know, five or six or 10 maybe. And in our entire lifetime, we want to buy maybe 20 companies. And then that's a very different way of investing than the way most people go at it. So we're really excited yeah. to introduce you to this. 20 in your entire life. Yeah, your whole life, you've got 20. And the reason you would think that way is I'm gonna buy 20 in my whole life, is that if you thought that way, and let's say you're you're a millennial like, like Danielle is, then you would be thinking real seriously, if I'm only gonna get 20 punches on this card, I really need to take my time and make sure that the first punch is a really good one. And yeah. the second one is a really good one. Yeah. And the third one is a really good one. And you'd realize, if you only bought one company a year, you'd be out of punches by the time you're in your middle working years. You'd be out of punches for the rest of your life. So really, if you thought about it in a linear way, and it's never linear, let's make that clear, you're not gonna buy one at the average pace of one every three years, right? Because you'd have five companies in 15 years you're going to wait patiently with a list of great companies. And then when the market collapses, which it's bound to do um, because it fluctuates regularly, 
then you are going to be able to pick up all five of these or seven of these all at once. Super on sale. Focused value. Focused like value. Focused value. Yeah. It's, good. it's more um, descriptive. It's more accurate. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. We'll use that one. So, all right. So we've been talking about valuation for a long time and we came or you came up with an awesome draft checklist, which we went over the last two podcasts. And um, and we got a few questions that are uh, a little bit timely. So we decided to take a time out from valuation as we are wont to do occasionally. We all need breaks. We all need breaks from valuation. <laughs> it's not, not my favorite subject. Well, um, I, I, we got a few questions. Yeah, I really I want to do a question from uh, one of our listeners named Al, Aaron Lowry, who wrote in a three part question. I'm going to see if we can get to all of it here in the next okay. next little while. And I'm not going to go in order. Um, so I, I just want to say great questions, Aaron, and everybody else who's writing them in. We'll try to get to as many as we can uh, over time. Write in your questions to questions at investedpodcast.com. So one of the questions that Aaron had was that, you know, we're trying to aim, we target 26% compounded rates of return. That's our target. Manesh Prabhrai has... 26% on his license plate, right? Just, no, he does not. Yeah, he does. Stop it. That is the nerdiest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Somebody's oh, going to send Monash this clip gosh. right here. I love it. I think it's great. It's a bit of the secret, right? It's like the, it in is. the secret, you're supposed to put this stuff on your refrigerator and look at it every day. Monash looks at his license plate every day, 26%. That's I mean, it. nerds are running the world. I... I I respect it. Yep. But it doesn't make it any less nerdy. Well, it's, it's quite cool. I, I totally well, it's agree like, with it. It's like what we were talking about last time with setting up your environment for success so that it supports your values. Exactly. And that's, good Lord, put it on your license plate. I love it. Exactly. I mean, it's 100% right. And I love the stuff that I keep getting in this podcast from you, Danielle, like setting up my environment. You reminded me that guy's got Warren Buffett's picture in, in his office. I need to get Warren's picture in my office. <laughs> I've got I've got George Foreman's well, picture in my office. Because I, I was mean, on I was on stage once with George. Great grills, Dad. Don't don't sell him short. I think George is a genius, I'll tell you the truth. Honestly. I, too. I, I met him a couple of times and he's just the most real person. He's just who you see. That's what you get. A guy on a street corner weighing 300 pounds with a big beard pitching Jesus in Houston from a street corner after he lost the heavyweight championship to Ali. And, you know, just, yeah, George was on a street corner in Houston pitching Jesus to whoever wanted to listen. And he was there at 300 pounds. He blew up. And he was 40 years old or something, 38 years old. And he had a big beard. And he would tell people, hey, how you doing? I'm George Foreman. You know, he's a friendly guy. I'm George Foreman. You know, I found Jesus and Jesus is my savior. Because George was like the original bad boy of boxing, right? Back then, there was nothing very spiritual or religious. It was a 100% hardcore street warrior. And with all of the things that go with that, who lost to Ali. And it okay. blew his mind that he lost to Ali. And he just lost himself and he found really? himself in Christ. Yeah, which is a great story, right? And so here's George on a street corner in Houston 
pitching Jesus to whoever walked by. He says, hey, I'm George Foreman. And people are like, yeah, right. They, they just thought he was a street nut. You know, was homeless. he really famous? Like, are people supposed to know who George Foreman was? Sure. I mean, he was okay. the heavyweight champion of the world. I mean, oh, yeah. People know who George I Foreman know. is. All I know are his grills. Well, you were just a kid back in those days. And, I but, don't even know when that happened. It's like... Foreman was famous, man. Life. Yeah. So anyway, famous. George Foreman is what? On your wall because because you like his story? I love his stories. I think he's one of the best public speakers I've ever listened to. Fascinating all the way. I think he's just an incredible human being. Um, and, you know, I just really dig the guy. So I, I got a picture with him, and I'm very proud of my picture with George. But, you know, it's inspiring me in many ways. But And George is incredibly successful. He's worth about 140 million bucks. Sorry, George, I wasn't probably supposed to say that, but I'm saying it anyway. 140 million or so. And he's... So make sure you say it twice. <laughs> yeah. And he's done it on his own. I mean, the guy is absolutely phenomenal entrepreneur phenomenal stage presence, phenomenal boxer. And of course, the George Foreman story that you don't know, apparently, is that he came back into boxing at 40 years old because his his wife just told him, George, you don't know how to do anything else. You're the worst Jesus salesman on the planet. You know, people are terrified of talking to you about anything, much less becoming saved or something. So you're doing a terrible job. You're terrible at that. Why don't you go? And George has got like eight kids. I got to make a living. He went back to boxing and he re-won at, I don't know, 42 years old. Something correct me. It's in the four, early 40s. He re-won the heavyweight championship of the world, which wow. nobody does. Nobody wow. does that. Yeah. I mean, it's, he's, his story is just like the most compelling, exciting story I think I've almost you know ever what? heard. I don't think that you need to take any lessons from Guy Spear about who to have on your wall. Clearly, you have the right guy on your wall. I'm, I'm pretty proud of having George on my wall. We all got to do what's right for us. And what's right for Guy Spear is not going to be right for me. And what's right for you is not going to be right for me. And what's right for the other guy down the street may be perfect for me. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Take inspiration from where you get it and um, and leave the rest. Yep. So, um, you know, you're inspiring me to, to update my walls. I got to add some more cool people to George. You know, absolutely. So uh, let's talk about any. Aaron's question. I mean, we wandered a field. How could we ever do that on this podcast? But we did. And what his question was is that you're projecting this 26% return and targeting it, but you're also telling us to sit in cash for long periods of time. And so what he did is he proposed, like, first the question is, how, how can you get a high return by sitting in cash? So let me give you a, a, a not hypothetical. This is an actual thing that happened. So Chipotle Mexican Girl is a company that I wrote about. I talked about it. And in uh, 2009, 2008 and nine, the price dropped, 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 dropped. And it got down to about $49 a share and started coming back up again in the gigantic financial meltdown in 2009. Okay, so we stepped in and bought Chipotle at 55 and rode that all the way up to where it got stupidly high priced about five years later at 550 and we got out. So, you know, these are round numbers, they're not perfect. But $55 going in, exiting at around 550 coming out five years later. And then, of course, Chipotle famously went on to $700, 760 before it finally started dropping. But, uh, you know, when we when it gets well up into the red zone above the, 
above the price. We're we're looking to reallocate capital. So that mm. that 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 basically, so if you had done had this, sense that it might not go any higher. I don't have any reason to think it would keep going but higher. Then it did, and then what can you do? Yeah, what are you going to do? You know, you 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 gonna, if you got a place to put the money, you put it someplace else. So here's the thing: if you guys knew what we're teaching you in this podcast, many of you could have made that same call in 2009 and bought that stock. Danielle, you could have done it um, in 2009 at $55. Now let's say, let's say that you started waiting to put money into the market in 2004, okay? Okay. 2004, you just started studying and studying and studying and studying and the market's going up, the market's going up and everybody's telling you you should be investing in mutual funds and you're just staying true to you're learning and you study for five years and then the market crashes, all right? So for five years, you invest zero dollars. All of your money is sitting in one place. Let's say you have $100,000 to invest and it's all sitting there doing basically nothing, just you know, making money market account rates of return. And then here you are five years later and this 100,000 goes in. Now, let's say you have much more than 100,000, but you're gonna invest 100,000 in Chipotle. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so like you've been sitting there just twiddling your thumbs, feeling super annoyed at how much time I've spent on this investing process. Nothing's happening, nothing's happening, nothing's happening, nothing's happening. And then three more years go by, nothing happens, nothing happens. Nothing, oh, it's the worst. Okay, fine. So now we're in 2009. <laughs> so by this time, you're thinking, this is not working. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. But out of blind faith, you hang on and son of a gun, the market crashes out of nowhere for something completely unrelated to stocks or even the companies that are in the market. It totally train wrecks. And all of a sudden, one of the companies on your list, Chipotle Mexican Grill, actually tons of them on your list, but Chipotle is one of them, go on sale. And you see this thing at $55 and you think it's on sale. So you buy it with $100,000. And then five years later, it's at $550 a share, and your $100,000 has become $1 million. That sounds awesome. Which would be pretty awesome. So it's $1 million, and you decide to get out. Now, if you didn't get out, then over the next uh, two years, that would have gone up to $750 a share, which would have given you about a million and a half dollars, but then it crashed down to 400. So. The, f the thing finally came down to earth. So it looked like we were wise to get out at 550, okay? okay? Now, that means in 2014 or 10 years later, your 100,000 that you started with in 2004 has now become $1 million. And your compounded annual growth rate per year happens to be 26% per year, including really? the five years you sat in cash. All right, the idea then is you wait, you wait, you wait, you wait, and then you make a home run. Is that the idea? That's basically right. You wait, you wait, you wait, you wait, and you're waiting for this fat, fat pitch across the plate, and you're yeah. not, you're refusing to swing at anything, any, even stuff lots of people swing at. You wait, you're waiting, you're waiting, because why? Because when you get the pitch you're waiting for, you're gonna hit it into San Francisco Bay, okay? You're going to right. clobber it. I mean, I like I like it, and I and I get it, and I get that like real life has backed that up. I do have to say, not everything's going to be a home run, you know, and that's why 
We invest in multiple companies. Yes, a small number, but still multiple. And, um, and we don't expect them all to be crazy Chipotle kind of numbers, do we? Well, yes, we kind of strangely... Well, no, I mean, Chipotle is an exception because it got on fire and just got crazy expensive. And so you end up with this really great sale down the road at 550 of a company that was probably worth 300 or something, right? Yeah. You still would have done really good, but you, this did insanely good. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't alone, you know? What happens is a company's that the emotions in the market will carry the price downward on fear far lower than it should be. And those same emotions will go the other way when they when the market starts to get greedy and irrationally exuberant. It'll carry these prices higher than they should ever go. So, for example, Whole Foods in 2009 was another one. You could have bought Whole Foods for $7 a share in 2009, and it went clear up to $60 a share. Okay? Wow. So that's, enormous. that's another Chipotle-level smash it out of the park home run so yeah. you know I mean, it's easy to look back at those things with hindsight right but, yeah of course but I, I mean those are companies that i liked a lot at those times so. but if we're targeting 26 percent, then there's lots and lots and lots of examples of this kind of stuff coming off of events like we bought gildan at um, net 15 dollars a share after the drop from 45 on cotton prices going through the roof because of the Egyptian spring uh, and revolutions in the Arab world um, were affecting cotton prices. And we bought that at $15 a share and it very quickly went up to $32 where we sold it. And it continued to go on up to 60, which made me feel rather bad about selling it at 32. But it went from 15 to 32 in nine months. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, it, it, when, when you buy in a company at 50% off, you're going to find that it often moves up very rapidly back to its value. resolves itself. Because the event resolves itself. In this case, the event resolved itself very quickly. In the case of BP, for example, that event resolved itself slowly and then unresolved itself through another event. So I bought BP at 27 in this huge, huge problem that it had with this well in the Gulf of Mexico. It had come from 60 down to 27 in a matter of a couple of months, and we bought it hoping it would go lower. But that turned out to be the bottom, and it started going up, and it went all the way back up to $49 a share. So it went from 27 to 49. Now, 54 would have been a full double, right? Um, and then oil started crashing went from $100 a barrel down to $30 a barrel, and BP went all the way back down to $30 a share. So you can see the value of buying a company uh, at, at a huge margin of safety price is that even when there's a catastrophe, um, following the catastrophe, you really are still have a big margin of safety and it never got down below our basis. Yeah, 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 yeah. So those are, right. those are all real world examples. So to answer Aaron's question, Essentially, the answer is you got to look super long term. That's the answer. You got to look yeah, long term. You and... might go zero, 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 zero for years at a time. Right. And then, you know, assuming things go well, you have a big home run on some other years. Which means, ironically, assuming things suddenly turn into horror shows in the stock market, you're going to get a big home run. And the truth yeah. is, the longer 
excuse me, the longer that you wait, the longer that the market continues to go up, um, the more the opportunity that the crash is going to be huge. Um, understand there's something called the business cycle that we'll talk about more in another another podcast. Um, but there's a long long term debt cycle that corresponds to the business cycle. And that is people borrow money, borrow money, borrow money, borrow money. And every you know, the, the money you borrow and spend is another guy's income. And so if you if you spend more than you earn by borrowing some ten thousand dollars on your credit card, you just increase some guy's income, let's say from one hundred thousand to one hundred and ten thousand, and then he can borrow more. He can borrow at eleven thousand, and now he can spend one hundred twenty-one instead of one hundred and ten, or instead of the hundred originally, right before you borrowed any money, and then some other guy can borrow, you know, twenty thousand, and he can spend one hundred thirty-three instead of a hundred. So this cycle spins up, and it usually lasts from peak to peak, about between five to eight years. So peak to peak. And then the, the economy starts to overheat because all of this extra spending above production levels is kicking up incomes and everything's growing too fast. And then the Federal Reserve Bank, the central bank, raises interest rates, makes it more difficult to borrow. Now you have less borrowing, makes it more difficult to repay your loans, makes it more and more difficult to borrow. Less and less spending happens. Now your non-spending is somebody's non-income and people have less money and the cycle works its way back down, okay? Every five to eight years, the stock market is gonna go down big time as we go into a recession. Um, so that's, that's something you can basically count on over time as the kind of cycle from peak to peak of roughly five to eight years. So there's gonna be a trough in there in between those two, let's say, eight-year periods. You're gonna, you're gonna have a trough that is the bottom of the market, which is what? Four years, right? At the longest. Yeah. Might be two and a half or three. Yeah. So if you can wait four years from the peak to the trough, you're going to be in pretty good shape when that trough comes in where you can buy this stuff, Aaron, and you can buy it cheap enough. It'll make up for four years of waiting. That's what I'm saying. Well, and we've talked before about how right now isn't such a great time to find things on sale. And that at first that really irritated me. But now I'm seeing it as an opportunity to practice my my fantasy trading, my paper trading. I like to call it fantasy trading to practice my um, my valuations, to do more research, to develop my list of companies that I like a lot that I would buy if they were on sale. And if it were like crashing all around us right now, I wouldn't have the time to do any of that. And I would feel very pushed. I would feel very like not ready. And so in a way, I mean, in kind of perversely not non in, uh, non intuitive way, this is actually giving me the time to practice before one of those down cycles hits. Yeah, I love it. It's I kind of think about it like you're building a bunker, you know, to protect you against the the missiles that are going to be coming in when the market crashes. There's going to be a lot of fear out there, and if you don't have your bunker built, you're going to get caught up in it, and it's going to be very difficult for you to pull the trigger on Chipotle Grill or pull the trigger on Whole Foods or whatever you're, you know, Volkswagen at ten dollars a share or something. It's going to be really hard to do. You you can sit here like an academic not where nobody's shooting at you and it's all just theoretical and think, oh, yes, I will. But if you have not done the homework, if you have not prepared yourself 
uh, to know that this is a wonderful company and to know what the on-sale price looks like, you're not going to pull the trigger. And you, you're not going to be able to do what Charlie says to do, which is to load up the truck. That's that's the skill set, is to load up the truck and get 10% of your hard-earned money into that company at that time. I think for me, that's where the, the regular practice element really helps, knowing that I'm doing a little bit every day. And when that time comes, it's not going to feel, because I, because I practice a little bit every day, it's not going to feel like it's like, oh, I've been doing nothing for six months and now all of a sudden I'm doing all these things and it's all different. It's like, no, I've been doing a little bit every day. Here's something else that I'm doing today and I'm going to do some more tomorrow. And every day it might be slightly different, but it's going to happen every day. Yeah. And it just smooths out those peaks and valleys in my own emotion about purchasing companies or not purchasing companies or finding companies that I like or not finding companies that I like. It just smooths out those peaks and valleys by knowing that it's it's regular and it's gonna keep happening every day or every other day, you know, whatever works in your daily schedule. Well, I think that's I find huge. it to be a very smoothing practice. Very cool, I love that. I love that, I'm so happy you feel that way, honey. Honestly, I am, I'm, I'm just thrilled that you're finding a kind of a a process, um, a practice. I love your word practice, okay? A practice. And um, honestly, because you started talking about that, I'm starting to think more and more about what I do as a practice. Uh, you oh. know, be because it really doesn't have an end to it. And I'm yeah. in something that I really love to do. And, and the people who do what I do, you know, I think they stay alive longer. I mean, Buffett's extremely mentally active at 86. Charlie Munger at 83, extremely mentally active. Walter Schloss ran his fund till he was 96, successfully 96 years old. So I love the idea of doing something for the rest of my life as a practice. Yeah. And when you have yeah. to think about, you must sit quietly now in cash. You know? <laughs> it, when you put it like that, <laughs> you must sit quietly. <laughs> you must sit quietly Treat now. And so, or, or for me, it's like like rowing down the river. In the Grand Canyon, we have long stretches of quiet water and then the occasional really rough big rapid. And it's just the beauty of, of being in the flow because it's a practice, right? It's not something you ever perfect. It's always something you're perfecting and you're always working to be better at it. You're always learning. There's always something to read. There's always something to do. And when you're rowing the river, there's always this flow that you're trying to read that you're comfortable with, but you're a little stroke here. Oh, yeah, that's a little better, you know. And then when you get to the big drops, because you're prepared and because you're in the right part of the river and because you've practiced this, they're fun. They're not particularly dangerous or anything. They're fun, you know. So in you know, that the context. interesting thing, though, is that you've never thought about it when it comes to investing. And that's a sign. And yet you clearly practice every day. There's no question. But to you, it comes so naturally that you've never had to think about it. I've never thought it's about just, it like it's that. It's just interesting. You just want to do it. And that's as far as you need to get. Because when something's interesting and you want to do it, you tend to do it. And for the rest of us... We do not find it interesting and we don't want to do it. So we have to think about it a lot more and think about the discipline and think about the process and think about the practice of it. So it's just, 
it's it's interesting when you say like how you feel about it and how other people like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger who obviously come to this so naturally they do this stuff but they don't talk about it as a practice because they don't feel it as something that requires thought I think you're so I think you're so right and I think they really feel that there are a relatively small number of people who will take take what they're teaching, take, take what I'm teaching you, and really put it into practice and really do something on a, on a lifetime basis. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's such an individual thing that I don't think they really encourage people to do it. I mean, they say you can do it, but they're not out there saying everybody should do it this way by any means. In fact, Buffett makes the point that his entire fortune is to be invested on after he dies in an index fund just stick it in an index fund and forget it because really? yeah and ray dalio who's one of the best investors in the world another uh, another transcendental meditation guy by the way who's yeah. spoken in fairfield ray dalio runs bridgewater which is the world's largest hedge fund it's over a hundred billion dollars um has as many times said that you know when he dies his fund will be operated in what he calls the all-weather fund which is a hands-off, rebalanced once a year uh, fund of, of four buckets that complement each other, but which are, are non-correlated. Um, so that these- And it's not actively managed? And it's not actively managed at all. And that's where his money's gonna go for so his family. Why are we doing that? <laughs> well, the main reason is, is because- Stop talking about our practice, just- <laughs> Well, it, it's, it's right to the- it's right to the point of Aaron's second question, actually. He says, what are, we, what are we doing with our money while it's sitting, waiting for a great company to come along? Should we be putting uh, it in an index fund? Good question, Aaron. Yeah, and, and here's, here's the answer. Um, let's start with Dalio and why he would do what he's doing. He said, first off, he doesn't, you know, he's not that positive that somebody can take these billions of dollars. Okay, remember, he's not working with 10 grand. Yeah. He's working with billions. He's already rich. His family's already rich. There's nowhere they have to go. It's about preservation of capital, okay. right? Which is a very oh, different thing. Not about growth. It not is about not growth. about growth at oh, that's all. Yeah. Everybody listening to this podcast who's continuing to listen to it is about growth of capital. <clears throat> There's about 8 million other podcasts out there um, and I'll be happy to recommend some to you guys that are all about preservation of capital um, to diversify across a large number of assets. But unfortunately, for many people, that's not going to do it. That's not going to be enough. You're going to be stuck. If you're young like Danielle, you're going to be stuck as a wage slave to constantly be at the mercy of some company, to have a job, to be able to perform, to be able to get the kids to college, to have a house in a good neighborhood with good schools. All of this constant pressure uh, under, under somebody else's management and, and you, you may accomplish all the things you want to all the way to age 65 and still have no retirement. That company could go broke and boom, there goes your pension or whatever, right? So <clears throat> taking control of your life financially makes a lot of sense just from a financial point of view, but it makes a lot more sense. And what I love about what's bringing you into a good connection with investing in your own sort of soul is that you're connecting your money with your values and actively performing uh, some something that will change the future in some way, in some small way, but the more money you get in some bigger and bigger way by putting your money into things that you value. 
So. Yeah, exactly. And so what, as I'm sitting here doing my practice, as I'm learning, as I'm working on finding companies that match my values, what should I do with my money in the meantime? So Aaron said, you know, should I try to go get five to 7% on average in this index fund? <clears throat> and I would say the first thing is that the key to being able to load up the truck, Aaron, when you have this wonderful company that's on sale finally, right? The market finally crashes and now it's on sale. The key to being able to take advantage of that is that you have cash. So if you've put your money in an index fund, your money just crashed with the market and you are screwed. Oh, yeah, totally. Now you can't, you don't have anything to buy. You know, your, your index fund went down 50% in 2009. Now what are you going to do? Okay, yeah, you're going to pull out half of it because that's all that's left and buy Chipotle. Great, but what happened to the other half? And all of a sudden, yeah, instead of getting... Yeah, and talk about your overall <laughs> rate of return that just, we just talked about. You just blew up your overall rate of return. Totally. So... Um, what else could you do, though? Well, here's here's what I recommend people do at our workshop. And I don't, you know, I'm not plugging the workshop because it fills up every single month. But just so you'll know... Um, there is a way to invest in indexes, in broad market indexes, that is, we, we've been pretty successful with in the past at exiting those indexes as the market is starting to tank. It involves Wait. a little more action, but yeah, you got you got to get involved. Like technical indicators and all that stuff. I am, I am indeed, um, and I don't recommend that until you really learn how to do it. So if you don't know how to do that properly, then you really don't have much choice other than to stay in cash. That's it. Yeah, that's just a whole, I mean, like, I get that some people maybe that's appropriate for if they're watching it every day. I'm not watching it every day. I mean, to me, that's the whole point of this whole thing is to come up with a way to not be watching things every day, to come up with yeah. a way that, that where I'm looking really long term. Yes, I'm doing my practice every day, but it doesn't involve checking what's happening on a day to day basis in like a like a kind of like nervous, like gotta avoid the drop kind of kind of feeling to it. Well, I don't, I don't think you have to do it every day, but you certainly have to be much, much more active and timing becomes important. And this isn't something for everybody. And the only reason we teach it at the workshop is because many of the people who come to the workshop have 401ks at the company they work at. And those 401k programs only allow the mutual funds and indexes. So because of that, we we teach it. But if you don't, ha if you're not stuck in indexes and four hundred one k's, a lot of people though. A lot of people have four hundred one k's. Yeah, it is a lot of people, which is why we teach it. But <laughs> in in this particular case, Aaron apparently has the ability to be either in an index or cash, and then invest in individual stocks. My recommendation is you stay in a you know money market account that pays a little pittance, and you have your money liquid to get it when you need it and don't put it in something that's gonna crash with the market so that you're ready to go and pull the trigger when, when the time comes. Does that's that's how I go. In, in your checking account or in your like investment account with your brokerage? Yeah, it's in your brokerage account and you can put it into uh, you know something that'll deliver a money market rate of return, I think in most brokerage accounts. So um, we'll get to more of his question later. I, I think we, that's enough for right now. Um, Obviously, if this is interesting to you and you like it and your questions answered, write us at questions at 
investedpodcast.com. Look at you. You remembered our email address. I know. Pretty good. Huh? <laughs> investedpodcast.com. Okay. Not rule1investing.com. If you want to find out about the workshop, go to investedpodcast.com. There will be a link to it. Yeah. Um, and we will finish up Aaron's question next time. Yep, we'll do. So until then, time to go play. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion, and it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.